But really, what a great opportunity for women to connect with one another and connect with our Lord and Savior. You know, stillness, being still and knowing that God is God is, is really a, um, an overlooked spiritual discipline. I know, you know, in the Latin season, we try to, uh, to focus on, on, on any number of spiritual disciplines, and I hope maybe stillness and quietness could be one of the disciplines we look at this, this, uh, in these seven weeks leading even up to this uh, particular retreat. Uh, you know, uh, Pastor Gary made comment about the, in his prayer about the uh, revival that took place down at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Maybe many of you heard about what happened down there. It was incredible. At the end of a typical Wednesday chapel service, um, some students refused to leave the chapel because they wanted to linger a little longer in stillness and, quiet, and quietness in the presence of God. And in that moment, God took a hold of that. And the Spirit showed up in a revival just tore through not only Wilmore, Kentucky, but on college campuses throughout our country, even in, in, in the world around us. I think in Uganda at some point in the past couple of weeks that it had a spontaneous revival that thousand people got saved, gave their life to Jesus. And I know many down in, in Wilmore did that as well. I, I just wonder, you know, these kids wanting to linger a little longer, be still a little longer, revival broke out. What could happen at this women's retreat? What could happen even at Church of the Lakes? if we just will be quiet and still before the presence of God. Probably my favorite piece about that whole uh, revival that took place down in Wilmore, Kentucky, is the pastor who preached in the chapel service. After he finished preaching, he sent his wife a text. He said, sermon was terrible, it fell flat. I'll be home soon. And then revival broke out, right? <laughs> now, I'm not setting myself up to tell you it's going to be a flat sermon today, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying that God can even use flat sermons to, to bring his spirit into our presence. Well, this morning we are kicking off our Latin sermon series entitled The Real Jesus. And this really is a, a seven-week Latin series that is part of the bigger initiative we're part of this year, 2023, uh, Core 52, where we're focusing on scripture uh, reading and scripture uh, memorization. But the title of this series, The Real Jesus, it sounds a little presumptuous, doesn't it? I mean, we know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, right? He's the long-awaited messianic king who has come to save us from our sins and point us in the pathway to eternal life. The real Jesus. I caught a story this past week about a boy who was uh, really wanting a new bicycle. And he just didn't know how to pray to God in order to, to receive this new bicycle. So he decided, you know, I'm going to, before I go to bed, pray like my parents pray. I'm going to imitate their prayers. So when he got to bed, he knelt before his bed. He bowed his head and he, he uh, you know, uh, held his hands like this. And he said, uh, Lord, if it be thy will, please give your humble servant a new bike. In Jesus' name, Amen. However, two days come and go, and guess what? There's still no bike. Well, maybe he prayed to the wrong Jesus, or he prayed in the wrong way, and he needs to do it in some other manner. So he's walking by, and he hears a prosperity preacher on the TV praying. He said, tonight I'm going to pray like that guy. So he got, before he got into bed, he kneeled before his uh, bed. He bowed his head, and he clasped his hands, and he said, Father, in the name of Jesus, I command thee to give me a new bike. A blue bike with studded tires and racing stripes. In the name of Jesus, I name it and claim it. Amen. Two days come and go. Guess what? No new bike. Well, maybe he did it wrong again. So he was in his house wondering what to do. Well, he walks by his father who's in the living room watching uh, Al Pacino in The Godfather. He said, all right, I know what to do. 
So that night before he went to bed, he went to the nativity set in his house, and he grabbed Mary from the set, brought it upstairs, bowed before his bed, held Mary, and he said, Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, you'll give me that new bike, right? You know, needless to say, this boy had a few misinformed views on Christ, did he not? You'd agree with that, right? Church, here's the thing. It's a sobering truth, to be honest with you. It isn't only this little boy that's confused about who Jesus is. We are in the midst of a culture, a society, that really struggles to understand who Jesus is. I mean, it's nothing new. Go back 2,000 years. Jesus is up in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, Mark 8, and he asks them a question, who do people say I am? And they're coming out with all sorts of answers about who this Jesus is, and finally Jesus says to them, all right, but who do you say I am? Peter jumps up, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, Peter, this was not given to you by man, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, your name is now Peter, which is the rock. And on this confession, on this truth of who I really am, my church will be built. But still, 2,000 years later, we're still somewhat confused about who Jesus is. Some people say Jesus is some mythical figure, right? Who's, who's just the, the lead actor in a religious fairy tale, but not a real person. Others will see Jesus as, let's call him tweetable Jesus. No matter what side you're on, Jesus, of course, is on your side when it comes to political and social issues, and you'll make sure to weaponize him when you want to put something on your social media that Jesus backs. Tweetable Jesus. Others see Jesus as genie Jesus, kind of like the boy in our story, right? Shows up at the right time to grant us the, the wish, the, our, our heart's desire you know, to, to push some life agenda. Still others like the precious moments, Jesus. Makes cameos, right, at high holidays like Easter and Christmas and weddings and, and funerals. Of course, there's fire insurance, Jesus, right? We make a deal with Christ that, that will secure our entry into heaven after we die. And my favorite's probably Buddy Jesus, our friend, right? Have you seen those, those statues of Jesus, Buddy Jesus? <laughs> okay, who's the real Jesus, Right? That, that's what we're going to talk about for the next seven weeks. Now, now listen, never will I and Brian and Robbie be able to give you an adequate and, and comprehensive answer to that question in seven weeks' time. Friends, let's be honest. A lifetime of study and the person and work of Jesus Christ will not give us the full picture of who he is. By the way, that's why we have eternity, right? To, to spend in understanding and worshiping the real Jesus. But be it what it may... Today I'm going to try to take a stab at it and give you somewhat of a glimpse of who this real Jesus is. And we're going to do it by looking at John's Gospel, the prologue of John's Gospel. I was listening to a sermon by uh, Pastor J.D. Greer out of Summit Church in, in Raleigh, North Carolina a while back. And uh, he made an impression on me with his sermon. And, and he looked at John 1 and what he called it was Jesus' resume that lists his qualifications as to why he and he alone is qualified to be our Savior. So we're going to dive into John 1, look at the first few verses, and then skip down to 14. But, but, but listen to, to God's Word. And if you have your Bible on your phone or in front of you, open it up, because we're going to walk through the verses so you can kind of have it handy and have it in front of you. But, but listen to, to, to John's account. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. 
And then skipping down. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. By the way, verse 14 is our memory verse for this week. And just to kind of get us prepped, will you all pull out your sermon notes? And I want us to recite uh, verse 14 together on our sermon outline. Okay, John 1:14. Ready? And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, I just ask in the midst of these next few moments that you would bless the words of my lips, the meditation of all our hearts, that they be of profit to us and acceptable to you, for you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the beginning was the word. You know, any serious student of the Bible, and when I say serious student, I don't mean a theological seminary student. I just mean somebody who's trying to be attentive to what God has written in his life-giving word. Any serious student of the Bible recognizes here in John, in that opening phrase, in the beginning was the word, that John is trying to echo the opening verse of the entire Bible. Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And do you remember how God created the heavens and the earth? What was it with a, a magic wand? Was it what's with some potion he concocted in a cauldron? Was it, I, I don't know, um, uh, did he create something out of raw material? How did Jesus create everything? He, he said it. He, he spoke everything into existence. The scripture said God said and it came to be. God said let there be light and guess what? There was light. God said, let there be a sun to govern the day and a moon to govern the night. And there was a sun to govern the day and a moon to govern the night. God said, let there be plants and there are plants. Let there be uh, uh, animals and there are animals. In Genesis 1, God created the world through his word, we are told. And now John, hear this, in the opening chapter of his gospel makes the staggering claim that the word that God used to create the worlds into existence is actually a person, Jesus. John is saying that Jesus is the creating force beyond the universe, behind the universe. He is the order. He is the logic of it all. That's verse 1 of John 1. If you move into verse, chapter, or verse 2 of John 1, you'll hear in the, word, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's confusing, isn't it? Let me say that again. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Confusing statement. Why? Here it is. How can something be with something, and at that same time, be the something that was created? Let me say it again. How can something be with something, and be that same something at the same time? Confusing. The Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses who do not peddle a real Jesus, I don't mean to pick on them, but I think they're a good illustration of what I'm going to say. When they look at this text, what they do to, to get the confusion out of it, instead of talking about a Trinitarian God, which is what the Christian church talks about, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what they will say when you look at that verse, the second God should be a lowercase g and have an indefinite article in front of it. So for a Jehovah Witness or a Muslim, they would read that verse, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. 
But like they're going to tell you Jesus is special. In fact, Jesus is the first thing and the most important thing that God created. But he's not God himself because God created him. But here's the thing, friends. Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses don't peddle the real Jesus, right? They don't. They peddle a false gospel. And the reason you know that to be true, because if you were to go one more verse, verse 3, their arguments debunk, their logic is illogical. Verse 3 says this, All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. So John is saying that if something was created, that it was created by Jesus. Which again debunks this idea that Jesus was a created thing, because that would mean Jesus would have had to create himself, right? And that's impossible that somebody can create themselves. Again, everything that was made that you and I see, that you and I know and don't know, was made by Jesus. And Jesus could not create himself, which makes Jesus an unmade thing, and the only unmade thing is God. The Word is God. Jesus is the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God, friends, the perfect expression of our Heavenly Father. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Think about it this way. I love the Old Testament. Some people think it's kind of an irrelevant part of the Bible because of Christ's coming and his death and resurrection and ascension and his second coming. But I think it's so important to study the Old Testament. If for anything, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ, predicts the coming of the Messiah, it is even a foreshadowing of what's to come. So let me give you an example of this. Leviticus, right? Anyone ever try to attempt the Bible in a year? You get to Leviticus and it kind of slows down, right? You run through Genesis because they're really exciting stories. You get to Exodus and Moses and the deliverance from Egypt. You're like, yeah, this is going good. You get to Leviticus. It's like, whoa, right? Well, here's the thing about Leviticus. Leviticus teaches us that God is holy, right? We saw what that holiness looked like and how Jesus lived his life. Perfect, right? Sinless man. Exodus speaks of how God is a deliverer. We see that in the way Jesus healed the sick, cast out demons, how he treated the outcast. Deuteronomy speaks of how God was one who was full of love and, and, and grace. We see that with how Jesus, say, interacted with the woman caught in adultery in John 4. Or how Jesus invited Zacchaeus to Zacchaeus' own home for dinner and ate with the tax collectors and sinners. The Psalms speak of how God is tender-hearted and long-suffering. He's patient. We see how that worked out in the life of Jesus with the way he, he interacted with his disciples, even in the midst of their own failures, and how Jesus always invited the children to come, even they, though children were not esteemed in ancient times. So, so what you have in Jesus' words, we hear the Father's voice, in his smile, we see the Father's heart, and in his touch, we feel the Father's presence. You get that in John 1, 2, 1, 2 and 3. M moving on into verse 4, where we see John continue with this Genesis 1, Jesus parallel, when he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. So in Genesis 1, the word said is used a lot. It's the prevailing word in Genesis. God said something, that something happened. 
In John 1, the word is light. Light is used seven times in, in, in John 1. Man, light is the first thing God created in Genesis 1. In fact, light is fundamental to everything else, right? Light brings life. We know that from fourth grade science class. What do we learn in fourth grade science class? A process called photosynthesis, right? Light brought life to plants. Isn't it true that, that, that when light shines on something, that something comes to life? That, that's what John is saying about Jesus. Jesus is like this. Jesus dispels the darkness. When the lights are on, you can see things. You can avoid danger, right? How many of us in the middle of the night have woken up from sleep because we have to use the bathroom? And we take the same path to the bathroom and, and nothing is moved in the room, but every time we walk down that path, what do we do? We stub our toe on the dresser. It's like nobody moved the dresser. How come I didn't see it? <laughs> well, because there's no light. Again, Jesus is like that. He illuminates our lives. He helps guide us through our decision-making. He makes sense of our relationships. We understand who we are in light of Christ. Friends, hear me. If, if you don't pay attention to what's going on in culture, just hear this. Here's something going on in culture. Our culture is screaming for somebody to tell them about their identity, to help them understand who they are. And our culture is leading people in a whole bunch of different directions, sexuality being one of them, to say this is your primary identity. Here's the thing. If you don't understand yourself in light of Christ, guess what? You will never fully understand yourself. You won't. The light of Christ also draws out our beauty and our distinctiveness. C.S. Lewis says it best. He says, in the dark, everything looks the same. It is only in the light that their distinctiveness and uniqueness is revealed. Now, in the same way, we are most ourselves when we are in fellowship with Jesus, his light. Man, light is fundamental to creation. and It is what holds all of life together. Again, Jesus is the same. Paul says to the Colossians, it is in Christ that we live and move and have our being. So the first three words on Jesus' resume that show his qualifications as to why he and he alone is the Savior of the world is the word, word light, and life. Friends, the main thing the Apostle John is doing here is he's connecting the real Jesus to the original work of creation. Again, in Genesis 1, God spoke, matter sprang out of nothing. Order came out of chaos. Light came from darkness. Life sprung up out of deadness. In the same way, John says Jesus' words bring order out of the chaos and the confusion of our lives. His word calms inner storms and gives us peace. His touch heals us of our diseases. All throughout the rest of John's gospel and even in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, you see this reality lived out. Jesus speaks the blind see. Jesus speaks the lame walk. Jesus speaks the dead are brought to life. Jesus' word delivers the oppressed from demons, breaks chains of addictions, and fills the broken with joy. Jesus' words release the sinner from their sins. And here this turns our graves into gardens. I love what John says about Jesus in Revelation. He says he has come to make all things new. You know, just as Jesus was the power force behind the original creation, he is the power force behind the new creation. First three words, the word, the light, and the life. 
Now, in verse 14, we get the fourth word on Jesus' resume. John says, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh and lived among us. That term lived among us, or, or some translations say dwelt among us, from the Greek is actually better translated as tabernacled. Which should, if you're a student of the Bible, say, oh, tabernacle, that's reminding me of the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the wilderness wandering, wanderings of, of God's people, they had a tabernacle. It was a tent-like structure that they believed, beyond a shadow of a doubt, housed the presence and the glory of God. Friends, that's the word John uses to describe Jesus. Jesus is this tabernacle that houses the presence and the glory of God. In Jesus, God has become flesh and moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says it. Uh, Christians call that the incarnation, right? We celebrate the incarnation every Christmas morning. Emmanuel, God being with us, the incarnation literally means in fleshing. That's the fourth word of Jesus' resume. God's glory, God's presence enfleshed. The glory of God took on flesh and blood, friends, so we could see it, touch it, and understand it. What are the defining characteristics of God's glory? We see it in verse 14. It's a glory that is full of grace and truth. You know, those are two terms we use all the time in the church, aren't they? Grace and truth. Depending on what church you find yourself in, you may see some bodies of believers focus more on truth and not grace, and others focus almost exclusively on grace and not truth. Like those who focus more on truth and not grace are very quick to say, this is God's law. This is the plumb line of our lives. This is what God desires for you and me in the here and now. And when we don't abide by it, guess what? They're quick to condemn us and exclude us. Those are churches that focus on truth apart from grace. There are others that focus on grace apart from truth, and they're very willing to, to open up their doors and be fully inclusive. All are welcome to come to, to Jesus Christ. Come ye all who are weary and heavy laden, right? But, but they're, they're not going to tell us about God's word and God's desires for his people and the way we live and conduct ourselves in relationship with one another. Here's the thing. Truth without grace is fundamentalism. Grace without truth is sentimentalism. Both lead us to death. Jesus was full of both grace and truth, and only that brings us life. Friends, Jesus' truth didn't cancel out his grace, nor did his grace compromise his truth. Jesus told us exactly about God, what God's righteous standards were, what the plumb line was, but then he died in our place because he knew we would never keep it and we would suffer under the weight of it. He didn't uh, grade on a curve. Jesus didn't lower God's standards. No, we know his life. He lived the plumb line perfectly. He was a sinless, sacrificial lamb for, our, for us. He died on a cross. Why? So we wouldn't perish under the weight of God's law that we could never keep. Glory enfleshed. The word living among us, man, so significant. We almost lose it because we celebrate it every year, but it's the truth. 
The incarnation is an incredible thing. Let me give you a word picture of how incredible this is. And some of you at your age might remember this story from the 60s because it made national news. 1964, New York City. A woman named Kitty Genovese, excuse me, was heading home to her apartment one night. And a man ambushed her and attacked her and began to stab her to death. She's screaming for help, which catches the attention of all these people in their, in their apartments. They run to their winners, windows, they turn on the lights, they open their blinds, and they're literally watching this woman get stabbed to death by this man. But nobody came out to help her. Right? A, a man was later interviewed about what happened, and he says this, and I quote, I didn't want to get involved. Not only was it dangerous for me, but there's too much legal paperwork and liability involved. Man, this became a national scandal. Look, what kind of nation has America become where a woman can be stabbed in plain view and nobody coming to her help, just staring and watching it take place? Church, we are all Kitty Genovese's, but thanks be to God, Jesus came down and sacrificed his life to save us. This Jesus who is full of both grace and truth. Jesus came to tell us the truth about our darkness, but then he died in our place so we could live forever. If you're taking notes, Jesus' resume. What qualifies him as our Savior? He is the Word, he is the light, he is the life, and he is glory in flesh, this glory full of both grace and truth. Okay, how are we to respond? Enough with the theology. How are we to respond Friends, simply put, we must believe in the real Jesus. Not some diluted or watered-down version of Jesus that, that kind of fits our preconceived notions of what a Savior should be. You know, there are some in our American churches that I think have diminished and devalued and diluted who the real Jesus is. And honestly, I don't know why. I don't. Too many people, even Episcopal leadership within church denominations are trying to convince us that, hey, it doesn't matter whether or not we all agree on who Jesus is. Friends, that's absolute nonsense. We must agree. Jesus says it. Mark 8, remember? Who do people say I am? Okay, who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, on that reality, I will build my church. So why do some Christian circles want to dilute and compromise the real Christ? I don't know. I can conjecture. It, 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 maybe it's because faithfulness and, and uh, to, to faithfully follow and serve Jesus is going to come at a cost. And we want more people in the church, so let's, let's lower the bar as low as we can so people will just come and be part of us. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's because we live in the midst of a culture that says they get the right to dictate the parameters around who the real Jesus is, and, and we need to abide by them, Right? Our country loves that we're Christians. Be a Christian on Sunday morning. Follow the real Jesus on Sunday morning, but come Monday, you put that Jesus on the shelf, you're mine. Is that why we've diluted the real Jesus? Maybe it's just simply because we want to make Jesus more palpable to our sentiments. I don't know. Friends, to believe the real Jesus, what that is, to believe that the word he is the word that created all things, that he is heaven's light, that he is the bread of light that has come down, that he is glory, God's glory enfleshed. To believe all of that means that Jesus gets to define and dictate the order and truths of our lives. 
our comings and our goings, how we are to live, it must be on his terms, not ours. After all, he's sort of earned it, hasn't he? I want to close with this exercise. Can you imagine with me for a moment that you were blind? In fact, everybody shut your eyes right now. Some of your eyes are already shut through this message, so this is okay. So some of you, shut, everyone shut your eyes. Pretend this is your existence, right? You've been blind your whole life, but suddenly, by some medical miracle, your sight has been restored, and now you see. You can open them now. No, no snoring. Open your eyes now. Huh? You can now see. How would you prove to someone else that you're now in the light? It's not that you can logically prove the existence of life. It's not that you can explain how the medicine actually worked to restore your your vision. It's simply because you can now see everything else because of the light, right? This is how Jesus is presented in John 1. Jesus was the light that came down into our world. God's word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of a father's only son. Church, because of Jesus, hear me, we have been made children of the light. Therefore, walk as children of the light. It is a light that can dispel the darkness of your lives. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He says, believing in Jesus is like believing that the sun has risen. We believe not only because we see it, but because by it we see everything else. Man, the most significant uh, moment in scripture that speaks of this reality is found later on in John's gospel, John chapter 9. John tells his story about a man who was born blind who Jesus heals. The man's sight is restored. He can now see. He's running all over his, his city telling people that this Jesus healed him from his blindness and he can now see. And the religious leaders catch a wind of what's going on, so they start slamming this guy with questions about who this Jesus is, how he gave you your sight. Were you born blind or did you lose your sight later on in life? And the guy doesn't know how to answer the questions. The, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, start asking him or, or giving him philosophical and, and uh, ideological arguments as to why that Jesus can't be who Jesus or this man says Jesus is. And the man finally, in a moment of his desperation, says, look, I don't know the answers to your questions, but this is what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Friends, we may not be able to give our culture or other people logical answers to their questions pertaining to our faith, but will we be able to at least testify to them that I was once blind, but now I see? This is what the real Jesus offers us today. He offers us his word, his light, his life, and his glory. The question remains, will you choose to receive what he has for you? And all the more. Friends, the Jesus we serve is the real Jesus. We are now children of the light, therefore walk and be children of the light. Praise be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we thank thee today for being the word that was, has come to bring order into our chaotic lives. For being the light that has dispelled our darkness, for being the, the light that has breathed hope and promise into us, and for being the glory of our salvation. Lord, we worship you this day as the real Jesus, the only Savior of the world. Now may we 
now live always as children of your light, children that bring your truth and grace into the lives of other people so they too can see, so they too can offer a testimony to the world around them. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.